0: Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters. Good morning. It's great always to worship again on Sunday, to sing, to pray, but now we hear from our God in His Word. And as always, we want to say, if you're new or newer here at this church this morning, we're so glad you're with us. So this morning, as we've been saying, we continue in the book of Philippians together. And last week, we left off the middle of that paragraph there in verses 4 through 7. And what we saw then was that this paragraph, this famous paragraph, is primarily a list of commands. Rejoice, rejoice, let your reasonableness be known, do not be anxious, pray. But we also saw last week was that within those commands, there's really one primary truth. And that's the truth in verse 5, that the Lord is at hand. And last week we talked about what that means, and it means that Jesus is close to us, and Jesus is close to coming back soon. So that was last week, and since we covered that in detail then, though, we won't be spending as much time on the fact that the Lord is at hand this week. Instead, there's another emphatic thing that we'll focus our time on this morning, and it's something that occurs in verse 7, and then again in verse 9 in our paragraph, In our our passage. So as we begin, before we even get into our overall outline together this morning, let's read those two verses, verse 7 and verse 9, and see if you notice yourself a connection in them. So look down to your Bibles. We're going to first read verse 7 and then verse 9. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So as you can see, both of these verses give a result of what will happen if we follow what the Bible says here in these paragraphs. In verse 7, it comes after being told to not be anxious and to pray. And then in verse 9, it comes after the command to think and practice certain things. And we'll come back to all of that. But for for our purposes now... Did you notice what the result is in these verses? It's peace. God's peace. And I want us to see that emphasis right away because that will be our overarching idea here together this morning. There is a way, church, as we live in this world, as we pray, as we think, as we do certain things, there is a way to more frequently have peace true peace, God's peace, peace that guards us, as verse 7 says, but as you might have also noticed, what's especially clever by Paul and beautiful for us in this passage is how while he basically says the same thing about peace twice there in verse 7 and verse 9, what's clever is how he also changes how he says it ever so slightly, Maybe you notice this. See it for yourself. Verse 7, the result is that we will experience the peace of God. While in verse 9, if you look at your Bibles at the end of our passage, it's in the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God and the God of peace. And that's clearly intentional. I think this is the first major thing for us to all take away this morning, even before we get into the details of this passage. And it's this, so so the hope and the goal of this morning, of course, is that through God's word, God may grant us to have more peace, more of a feeling of peace, but even more so, and along with that, as verse 9 shows us, what we also need to see here is that this peace we're after isn't some indefinable thing, nor is it actually that we're just or mainly after peace. Instead, notice again verse 9, what we're really all after this morning, and our anxieties, and our praying, and our thinking, and our doing, isn't just peace, but more precisely, it's God. The God of peace. In other words, what our Christian lives in this text is ultimately about isn't just having things like peace. is isn't just about feelings we can have as good as they are. Those are good and true, but as Christians, we're ultimately about our God. And now he is the God of peace. Meaning God is real. And as Christians, we know that he's not some far-off creator who just created and has nothing to do with us. Instead, he's the creator and the sustainer, as the Bible tells us. And part of that sustaining is that God is so intimately involved with us, his people. So that in our anxieties, in our thinking, in our doing as we live in the world, we can have more of him and more of things like his peace. And so again, our goal this morning isn't to leave here just saying, I want more peace. Yes, I do hope you leave here saying that because I hope you're sitting here right now and you're thinking, man, I want more peace through Jesus. But that is not our ultimate need nor desire. Instead, our ultimate need and desires for God For this personal triune living being, Father, Son, Spirit, who's real, who accomplished this gospel for us, and so who right now loves his people and wants to give us peace. Which finally brings us to our outline for the morning. So as you'll see, as you probably noticed, our text neatly separates into two different sections. One for each paragraph, two different sections. And first, we'll look at the God of peace in our anxieties and prayers. And that will be verses 4 through 7. And then second, we'll look at the God of peace in our thinking and doing. So very basic. First, God in in our anxiety and prayer. Second, in our thinking and doing. And through it all, once again, our goal isn't just to have more peace, though it is. But it's to know and enjoy more the God of peace. But with that said, let's now begin our first section together. For this, we'll be in verses 4 through 7, where again we'll see the God of peace in our anxieties and prayers. But to start, if you want to look down your Bible, we're just going to read verses 4 and 5. So it's Philippians 4, verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So we already talked about rejoicing the Lord always a lot last week. And so for this week, we're going to pick up in verse 5 with that command there. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that word there, reasonableness, can be translated, translated, as you probably see if you're reading the ESV, it has a footnote there that's helpful. It can also be translated as the word gentleness. And to be honest, the word gentleness is probably closer to the original Greek word there. But the idea here is that the Bible here is commanding us to show to the world, as Christians, a certain reasonableness and gentleness. Meaning that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be reasonable, gentle, kind, not chaotic thinking or militant people, all because we know that the Lord is at hand. And so that's verse 5, but as a quick application for us, I want to take it a second And point out that this command here, right there in verse 5, is just as important as all the other commands in this paragraph. (laughs) Those about rejoicing and not being anxious and praying. And I point that out because it seems to me, maybe to you, from all the times I've heard this passage taught or talked about, this command seems to be the one that's kind of downplayed. (laughs) I think that's because the other ones are so beautiful, right? And this one might be a little confusing. But again, this command here in verse 5 is just as prominent as the other commands here. And so this means that a command from God to us is to be reasonable, gentle people. And specifically, as you can see in verse 5 yourself, it's to be such reasonable and gentle people that it's known to everyone. The command is that people look at us Christians and they say they are reasonable people. They are an understanding people. And especially, they are gentle people. And even saying it like that, I'm sure we're all feeling how much we do not obey this command. Particularly today in our highly divisive society and environment, we often put brute truth over anything like gentleness or reasonableness. But let's be clear, God in the Bible, here and elsewhere, doesn't just care about truth, although of course he does. Nor does he just care about love, though of course he does, but he also cares about our reasonableness and our gentleness as well. And so as a personal application from all of us, from verse 5, let's ask ourselves, how can I personally strive to live more in a way where people see me as reasonable, as gentle, And whatever your answer is, apply that to your life. Maybe it's avoiding certain topics of conversation with people, all because you know at the moment you just can't be gentle when you talk about those things. (laughs) Maybe it's stopping watching that channel or going on that website, that news site, or going on it much less because you know it just fuels this non-gentleness in you. (laughs) Maybe it's just getting off social media for a while. Maybe it's having an accountability partner on this and asking him or her to just be really honest with you whenever they see that you're starting to not be gentle. Maybe it's going to the person you know you haven't really been gentle with and confessing it to them. Whatever it takes, God's word is clear to us. We are commanded to let our reasonableness, our gentleness be known to everyone. So that's verse 5. But then the most famous part of the passage comes in verse 6. As we all know, here Paul is going to transition to anxiety and prayer. So now let's read that. So look down in your Bibles, Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So this is a famous verse for a reason. Not only is it talk about anxiety, which is something all of us deal with, but it gives us something to do with our anxiety. But important to note at the outset here is that Paul is essentially here just riffing on our Lord Jesus' command about anxiety during his earthly ministry. Because you might remember it was Jesus who himself in Matthew chapter 6 said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And, and we know that this is most certainly what Paul is referencing because, because Paul decides to use the same exact word for anxious that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 6. And it's an interesting word because the word does mean anxious or worried or maybe more specifically troubled with cares. But as I was studying it, I saw that even more broadly, this word can mean Distracted. And so taking all of that together, that's then what's going on here. The command from Jesus in Matthew 6 and from Paul here is to not be anxious. To not be troubled with cares or distracted with worries. In other words, since the fall, what happens in our fallen natures is that we know we have these cares. These things in life that we have to deal with, especially these things usually in the future. And because of our fallen nature, they trouble us. They often make us worry. They distract us from whatever we're doing in the present. And they consume our thoughts. And that's anxiety. And the point of Jesus' and Paul's teaching is that we should strive to not be anxious about anything. And why? Because see it for yourself. In verse 6, we're told to not be anxious about anything. Why? Because in everything, we can pray. And I point that out because this means, this is a fascinating point, that why do we not need to be fretful ultimately? Why do we not to be fretful or feelful about the future? Well, it's because God, the God we pray to, is in control of everything. That's what's implied here. Because think of it this way. What if there were some areas of life, whether it be human emotions or choices or natural events or whatever. What if there were some areas of life where God didn't have total control and sovereignty? Well, then both Jesus's and Paul's logic actually wouldn't work. Because if that were true, if God didn't have total control, then we could say back to Jesus and to Paul, we could say, yes, I understand that since God is in control of these certain areas, then I don't need to be anxious about things in those areas. But since he isn't in control of these other areas, then I have good reason to be anxious. But again, notice that's not the case in the Bible. Implied in Jesus' teaching and in Paul's teaching is that God is in control of everything. And that's why we don't need to be anxious about anything. But that then leads us to the thing Paul says we should do in response to any anxiety. So we're not to be anxious about anything, but then he concludes, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so, as you can see from the simple grammar, Paul considers prayer in some sense the opposite to anxiety. If we're to not be anxious about anything, the flip side of the coin is, but in everything, pray. In other words, in this life, we will experience anxiety. We are, we are fallen. <laughs> we often worry and are fretful and are troubled by the cares of this world. And as a quick side note on this, in case you're sitting out there and you're wondering right now the question, is anxiety a sin? I actually don't think that it's the most helpful question to ask that way or uh, very helpful to spend a long time answering the question posed that way. And I say that because in reality, just like with so many other emotions such as fear, which is very similar to anxiety, it really matters what you mean by it and what's going on in your heart as you're feeling it. And so in some contexts, anxiety certainly may be a sin if you're deciding not to rely on God or trust in God. But in other cases, just like you may rightly be fearful if you're standing in a field and there's a lion across the field from you, so you may rightly, in a sense, naturally be said to have anxiety or future fear if you're told that you have to go back and stand in that field the next day. Not because you don't necessarily trust in God, but because God made us to feel fear when things are genuinely dangerous. As long as while you're feeling that fear, you also simultaneously are genuinely trusting in God. So that's a a side note, and for more on that, you can Google the question, is anxiety a sin? And I encourage you, to add the letters TGC to your Google, that's just the Gospel Coalition, TGC, because you'll find a helpful article that you can read online that talks about four ways we feel anxiety. So that's a side note though, so back to our text. So again, the point here is that in this life we will experience anxiety. Life is dangerous and hard, and we're fallen. And in that difficulty and fallenness, we often feel troubled about the future, whether it's because we are disregarding God about the future or because of some legitimate danger ahead of us. Either way, anxiety is real. We all feel it, some of us more than others. But what's the flip side of it? Prayer. And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And specifically, as you can see, prayer here is is described as four different things, including four different things. You can see yourself first, it's generally called prayer, which is just talking to God. Second, it's called supplication, which is a more specific uh, word than the word prayer. And this is probably here because it means that whatever is specifically causing you anxiety, you can specifically go to God about that. And third, the Bible says here prayer uh, involves requests, which is similar to supplications. But then fourth, Paul also says here prayer includes thanksgiving. And everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it's this that perhaps is the most interesting thing here in this list of what prayer is concerning anxiety in verse 6. Because think about what this verse is saying. Don't be anxious about specific things. Instead, talk to God about those specific things. And if that was all the the passage said, that would make a lot of sense. But that's not only what our passage says. Instead, the point here is, yes, talk to God about it, but also do it with thanksgiving. And so the question is, why is thanksgiving mentioned here? Because you'd think the Bible would say something like, do nothing, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with trust or with assurance that God's going to help you or with faith or something like that. But instead, the Bible says don't be anxious and pray with thanksgiving. And, and so, why? Well, I point that out because I think that that little phrase there, with thanksgiving, is the biggest clue. how this whole response to anxiety is supposed to work for us in this paragraph. And if we only focus on the prayer part, which we often can, we might miss it. Because think of it this way. So we have anxiety, we have things that we are worried about concerning the future. Or as I was studying this all this week, I heard someone quote someone else who said, anxiety is living out the future before it gets there. And, And we all do that. We have the future before us. Something about our lives, our our futures, our families, our jobs, our kids, our health, whatever it is. And we're often fearful about it. And so we all have anxieties. And the Bible's flip side to this is, yes, first of all, prayer. Meaning, talk to the living God who controls the future. (laughs) Right? It's saying, God, I trust you with my future. You are in control and so I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to ask you for help because I believe and I know that you love me and you're willingly able to help. And so, so that's prayer. But again, why thanksgiving? Because now add this to the picture. So, so as we do that, we not only should pray and trust God with our future, But we also, in our prayers, and our anxieties, are thankful for all he's done in the past. And I mean really thankful. Because let's be clear on this. So often, thanksgiving for us is just this dutiful thing we think we're supposed to do because we're taught from a young age. (laughs) Like when you're a kid and someone gives you a lollipop and your parents say to you, what do you say? And you respond dutifully with thank you. But that's not fully the emotion of thanksgiving. Instead, true thanksgiving is when you truly in your heart are so happy about a gift that you have been given that you genuinely are thankful to the one who gave it to you. Thanksgiving is when you get a gift that you've always wanted and so it's easy. It's a joy to turn to the one who gave it to you and say thank you. It's it's not a duty. And so, imagine if we became people, if you became someone who felt that way toward God in your prayers, in your anxieties? What if we became people who didn't just pray and trust God for our futures and our anxieties there? Because that would be applying verse 6, but not all of verse 6. Instead, what if we also became people who, while praying to him about the future, were able to look back at our past and feel such thanksgiving even in the midst of our anxieties? And so that's why I think this with thanksgiving is here because the full picture then, brothers and sisters, the response to anxiety in verse six isn't just prayer and trust. It of course includes that. And so we must be people of prayer, but the full answer is much more. Because specifically, the answer to our anxieties is prayer and trust to God for the future all because we are people who look at our past who look at the gospel and what Jesus accomplished for us in our past, and we're able to look at what God has personally done for us in our past, and we're able to look at the past as proof that he will be faithful and good in the future for whatever is making us anxious. Which finally brings us to verse 7. So with all that said, verse 7 now will start to make a little more sense. Let's read it now. In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is the result of praying and being thankful in verse 6. It's, that's the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, bring such prayerful, trusting, thankful, even joyful people, not just in the abstract, but because we genuinely are thankful to God for all he's done for us and all he will do for us, being like that we experience more of God's peace. We're able to experience the peace that Jesus himself promised his disciples when he said in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the reason this peace is said to surpass all understanding isn't because we can't explain it at all. Because if that were the case in this paragraph in the Bible, and a sermon like this would be pointless. But instead, this is similar to how Paul writes about God's love in Ephesians chapter 3. Because there, Paul prays that Christians, quote, may know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. The prayer is that we may know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. So we may wonder, what is it? Can we know God's love or does it surpass knowledge? And the answer, of course, is both. And that's true for the peace of God here. On the one hand, the peace that we feel is rooted in a sense in what we know. And knowing God, knowing he's in control, knowing he hears our prayers, knowing he's good, been, good, been good to us in the past, will be good to us in the future. But then also, it's a peace that cannot be fully explained. It is not just a logical conclusion. But it's a felt, unexplainable, beautiful reality. And finally, this peace, as you can see in verse 7, isn't just something we feel, but it guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that verb is a military term, to guard, to keep, to protect. And so this peace we feel is something that keeps us from turning away from God in our anxieties. And this peace is for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's verses 4 through 7, and I know that's a lot, but, but I hope we all see now how this can be really helpful to us in our anxieties. Because when you're anxious, remember God is in control. Remember he loves you. He's eager to help you and hear you in prayer. And finally, remember all he's done for you in the past and the gospel in your life, proving that he will be faithful in the future. And so knowing all that, the application for us is then to go to him in prayer with thanksgiving, which by his grace will lead us, even in our fears and anxieties, to have more peace. But one last thing on this all before we do move on to our second section, especially because anxiety is such a pertinent topic, I'm sure, for all of us. Notice the Bible here, nor elsewhere, doesn't say that this must be our only response to anxiety. It is our main response in a nutshell, going to God, of course. But God's word elsewhere would certainly allow for us to do other things like talk to others about it. And the Bible never says that we can't do things like embrace God's common grace in the world with good things like counseling or medicine. Because again, it is true that this text is a great, arguably the best application for anxiety, but we aren't being biblical nor helpful if we then teach that this is the only Christian response to anxiety. Instead, God's word allows for us to use other avenues alongside this as well. Other people, groups, medicine, whatever, as long as while we use them, we still pray, are thankful, and we still ultimately are trusting in him. Which actually fittingly now does lead us into our second section this morning. So that was the peace of God in our praying and anxieties. But now we'll see the peace of God in our thinking and our doing. And for this we'll be in verses 8 and 9. So look down to your Bibles and read those now. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So as you can see there, verse 8 is about our thinking, and then verse 9 has this command about our practicing or doing, and so let's take those one at a time. First, verse 8 tells us what we should think about, and in fact, this is one of the most positive lists in the whole New Testament concerning our morality and what we should engage in and think about. And I say that because look, look at that, verse, that list there in verse 8. Every single one of those characteristics, of what we should think about, is described both as exhaustive. It's exhaustive with the word whatever or any. And it's described positively. Right? Whatever is true. Meaning whatever is rooted in reality. Whatever is honorable. Meaning whatever is worthy of being respected. Whatever is just, meaning whatever is right and fair. Whatever is pure, meaning whatever is unstained and it's as it was meant to be. Whatever is lovely, meaning whatever is beautiful and pleasing. Whatever is commendable, meaning whatever is something you admire and you want to go tell others about. And then finally, the Bible adds these two sweepingly positive remarks. If there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then we should think about those things. And I point out all that exhaustiveness and positivity because this verse, rightly so, has been a verse that many Christians use to point out that as Christians, we aren't commanded in the Bible to seek out and think about only explicitly Christian things in the world. Meaning, we aren't commanded to turn a blind eye to everything in the world that isn't specifically Christian and only regard Christian things as good. And this mistake has grown even more popular when people started believing again the ancient sacred-secular divide, believing that certain good things in the world are sacred, while other things might be good, but they're deemed secular. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Instead, again, see it here, if anything is true, anything, meaning actually true and rooted in reality, we can study it and think about it and enjoy it. And the same is true for the other characteristics. If anything is genuinely honorable, fair, pure, lovely, commendable. And again, it's seen most emphatically towards the end of that verse in those last two remarks. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. And so this means as Christians, we should be those who live in God's world and look for anything that's excellent or commendable or worthy of praise. And then we can think about those things and enjoy them. And why is this? Well, it's because the Bible teaches and we believe that God not only created the world and saves us as people, but importantly, as the creator and the sustainer, he's also infused his world with beauty and excellence. Even in things that are sometimes invented and produced by non-Christians themselves. In other words, we can go out into God's world and enjoy these things and thank God for them whenever we find them, whether it's good food or an enjoyable book or, or a park or a hobby like art or music or enjoying watching something like sports or anything else. As long as it fits the criteria in verse 8, the Bible gives us freedom to enjoy it and to give thanks God for, thanks to God for it and, and technically... Not only does verse 8 give us the freedom to do this, but the Bible commands us to think about anything like this that we find excellence in. But, of course, we do need to note that as we do this, we must watch out for our sin. (laughs) Which is so prone to use texts like this to justify things that we know we shouldn't be engaging in. And I say this as someone who has seen firsthand people take verse 8 and run with it to a place that the Bible then wouldn't allow. Right? And this way, people can use a verse like this to then engage in things that are sinful and are not glorifying to God. And so our calling, church, individually and as a church, is to walk this fine biblical line on this. Right? So on the one hand, not be those who believe the sacred-secular divide and who therefore only enjoy things that are explicitly Christian. Because that would be denying the exhaustiveness of verse 8, the whatevers. But then on the other hand, we must be careful to not use texts like this to justify any sins. Or to say positively in one sentence, we are commanded to enjoy God's world. But we must also always be careful to not engage in any sin. So that's verse 8, but that finally leads us to our doing in verse 9. This will be our quickest, so let's read that one more time now. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So now Paul is talking about practicing or doing certain things and what specifically are we called to do here? Whatever we've learned and heard and received and seen in Paul. And so here once again, Paul puts himself as an example like he did in Philippians 3.17. And as we pointed out there, it's important us to know that Paul does this from time to time, but he ultimately does it because he's striving to imitate Jesus himself. And so he's pointing the Philippians and us to himself, and he's saying, whatever you see in me that's worthy of imitation, do it. And I think he does this with things we're supposed to do, if you notice this, and not with things we're supposed to think, because the truth is we can't see what people think. But we can see what people do. And so the point is, look at others in the faith who you believe to be godly people and imitate them. Because our God is not against imitation. Yes, he made you unique as your own person. But also, he has designed us in such a way where we are helped by seeing and therefore imitating things in other people. And finally on this, notice the order of these terms used in verse 9. Learned, received, heard, seen. Because the truth is, it's one thing, right? To learn, to receive, to hear something from someone. And it's another thing to see it in them. And so the Bible's point finally on verse 9 here is, yes, imitate people who are talking to you and directing you to Jesus. But especially the command here is to seek to imitate people who you see are acting out their faith in a mature way. And then do what they do. Ask them what they do. Ask them how they do it and practice it yourself. And again, the result, more peace. Us feeling closer to God and the God of peace will be with you. So that's our text. First, we saw how we can have God and his peace and our anxieties and prayer. And then we saw how we should think and do in this world and how that can lead us to more peace as well. But now as we close, let me just make one final application for us all. One final application, and it's this. So if you've noticed, we've been tracking what we've covered here this morning covers a lot of our lives. And what I mean by that, we've talked about not only our thought life and our doing life, but we've talked about our anxieties and our troubles in life as well. And isn't that basically kind of life in a nutshell? We think, we do. And we're troubled. <laughs> and we have to add this third category because, let's be honest, so much of life is difficult. And the question is what do we do with difficulty? And in fact, when you study all the other major religions, you'll see that this question is usually what's also at the heart of them. And that's because for all of human existence, the main issue in life hasn't just been what should I think and what should I do, although that's true, but more so it's been what do I do with what's messed up with me and what do I do with these fears and uncertainties? And so that's the common issue. But once again, I bring that up because the answer from the Bible and the application for all of us to leave with is to go to God himself to our Savior to the God of peace the answer is having a genuine relationship with him and so once, one last time this application brings us back full circle to where we began because as we began we said yes there's a lot in this scripture but our encouragement this morning is to not get caught up so much in the details that we forget the ultimate point the ultimate point of all of this, as it often is in the Bible, is God himself. He's real. He's sovereign. He cares for you. And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are his now and forever. And so he can help you in your anxieties. He's with you in your thought life. He's with you in your actions. And so an application, of course, on this passage is, is to pray. And so I do encourage all of us to strive from this to become people more and more of prayer but above all the application is let's keep the living god central the real alive triune living god keep him central in all of our praying all of our anxieties all of our thinking all of our doing because the bible says he's not only our savior and our lord and our friend but he's also our god of peace and if we trust in jesus christ then we can know he's with us for us, and he's ready to pour out more peace upon us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.